Hey everyone, I'm Caitlin Barnard. And I'm Victor Gamow. In this series, we chat with software developers and technology leaders to tackle your biggest API connectivity challenges. Stay tuned to this episode for tools, tactics, strategies that will help you to take your distributed architectures to the next level. Let's begin. And I'm extremely excited, super excited for this show. I don't even remember when the last time I was super excited for that guest, because today I have a Jessica Dean, Principal Cloud Advocate at Microsoft. And my friend, Jessica, welcome to Concast. Thank you so much for ha having me, Victor. How you been? Uh, what's, your, uh, what's new and exciting in, uh, in your life? Uh, last time I saw you, you didn't do principal job, but like you always delivered super awesome demos that were on the level of principal or even staff uh, developer of the kit. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so that's probably the newest thing is I am officially a principal cloud advocate at Microsoft uh, as of last September. Uh, and then other than that, I'm just living the pandemic quarantine life, adjusting to this this new world. I think, gosh, it's been, I don't know, two or three years. I think the last time we hung out was at KubeCon. We went yeah. and did CrossFit and then they turned us into like a graphic and that was fun. Always a great time hanging out, but yeah, still living the Kubernetes life and whatnot, just doing it. Lots of home improvements. Uh, <laughs> yes. I see you doing a, a lot, a lot of house. Lots of like home automation. Uh, awesome uh, projects around the how to automate uh, some of the life with developers. You know? Yeah, I love taking things that should be simple, like turning a light switch on and complicating it to simplify it, so now I can visualize it on a dashboard. I love doing, just having fun, right? I mean, tinkering, yeah. hacking, geeking out. It's all. It's always a good time. So I have a question to you. Okay. I interviewed a, a bunch of uh, different folks and we talk about more like a day two type of stuff. Like when we already wrote our application, we develop our application, everything is on Kubernetes these days. Like we talk about observability, but I didn't talk much in the show about, you know, the developers, you know, what, how they would develop, how they would transition their workflow. And one of the questions that I recently had having the conversation with customer, when they said, well, you know, we right now know how to run everything in one monolithic application. We have a Java E container. We have every developer has its own um, the version of the software on their computer. They package this in uh, WAR or ER or all this kind of stuff and deploy this in this huge JBoss container. Like you telling us how to do this microservices stuff, but we don't know how to develop this. And that's why I think that would be a good opportunity for us to chat about this and answer this question. You know, how you can go from the one place, you know, that where have everything in one place and you can debug this and put different uh, breakpoints and different uh, the codes because it's one process. Yep. And uh, we can talk about some tools that uh, you're working or your team is working on as well, yep. um, specifically to, to Kubernetes as well. Yeah, the goal is to simplify that day two experience, right? I mean, a lot of the things, everyone wants Kubernetes, everyone wants abstraction. It's been around now for six years. And you even at conferences, the CEO and CTO is like, okay, go sit in on every Kubernetes session and every abstraction system session and every distributed systems. It, insert buzzword here, go learn about that technology. And once you've learned about it, once you've implemented it, once you've done that abstraction from a developer perspective, how do you keep the same inner loop that you're used to? How do you still, as you said, like hit breakpoints and debug effectively when now you have different services? You have a, a, a multi-container scenario where you have several different APIs and 
let's say that you're troubleshooting one of them, but you still need to connect to the other ones. How do you set that up in a local dev environment? Um, and that's been one of the challenges that I think anyone faces when they're on that day two scenario of, okay, we're now doing distributed systems. We're now in, we've abstracted everything, but how do I still develop and debug effectively and quickly, right? I mean, the goal is still to be agile and iterate. And what's the best way to do that? There's actually open source uh, tools and products that you can use that I personally am super passionate about, mainly because it makes it not only easy, but it makes it fun again. It's it's great. So some of the time ago, like uh, back in the day, the Kelsey High Tower called uh, Coop Control uh, or Coop CTL or Coop Cuddle. By the way, how you pronounce it? Like, what's your favorite way to pronounce it? I pronounce it with the letter K. <laughs> That's my terminal. That simplifies it. I want to type as little as possible. I don't have a preference. I know some people are like, I don't cuddle with my Kubernetes. <laughs> sometimes you do. I mean, I sometimes you're all over your cluster trying to figure out what's going on. But um, kubectl, 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 as long as we all know what we're talking about, we can yeah. communicate effectively. Yeah, so he essentially called uh, kubectl command as a, like a modern day SSH. So if you wanted to do something, you um, SSH to the server. And mm -hmm. now you have a kubectl, you SSH to your Kubernetes cluster. And to bring this parallel, in my times when I was working in a consultancy in the Java E world, so we had this kind of like SSH tunnel to remote machine where we can have a install kind of a remote debugging session with my JVM yep. and do similar things. Can we do something like this in the Kubernetes world these days since we start with kind of moving our mindset from this monolithical Java E application? Can we do the same in the Kubernetes world? Yeah, you absolutely can. And you can do it also, in my opinion, a lot easier. So, I mean, the, the type of scenario you're talking about I mean, whether you're SSHing or you're RDPing or you're connecting somehow over to a server and then you're setting up your remote tools so that your system can still connect. And that's, a, that's still a lot of manual steps. I mean, that was the old school way, but that's still a lot of things that you're having to set up and configure. With Kubernetes, you can actually use something called Bridge to Kubernetes. That's an extension from Visual Studio Code. Now, that's one part of it. But when I set up the extension, I literally run through a few commands where I make sure that I my computer has access to my cluster. So there are a few presumptions. One, you're already going to have a Kubernetes cluster. Two, you're already going to have access to that Kubernetes context and config, and you have some sort of control for that cluster. Um, once you do, that particular extension, Bridge to Kubernetes, is going to utilize that local context information and create, create a connection. Uh, the extension itself will actually set up your task.json and Visual Studio Code launch.json. And it'll actually configure a debugger that uses your same, like let's say that you're writing in, uh, I don't know, Node, and you already have a yeah. Node NPM debug configuration. It'll use that and then attach a Kubernetes task to it. So the extension is doing all of that configuration that you and I used to have to do manually back in the day. The exactly. extension's doing it for you. Now, once yeah. you run it, that extension also on the back end behind the scenes is deploying a pod for you to your cluster called Routing Manager. That Routing Manager uses Envoy. All of this happens behind the scenes, uh, but it uses Envoy to help route traffic for you to use as you're doing your local development. You can do it either in an isolated fashion or you could completely hijack traffic for one particular service, depending on what type of cluster you're working in. Obviously, in production, you would never want to give access to that. But the cool thing is, is again, that extension is doing all of that configuration for you. And once that routing manager lives in your cluster, it lives there permanently, and you can actually end up communicating with that through the Kubernetes binary, kubectl, kubectl, or k, as I like to call it. And then you can tap into that even from things like GitHub Actions 
or whatever your preferred CI/CD system is. It's it's really powerful. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Okay, so let's talk about the workflow. So I'm okay. developing this like uh, the microservice application. So I have a two version, two two services. One service written in Go, one service written in in Node. And uh, now I need to understand the how the, for example, Node uh, Node service that's going to be my uh, service that will be providing some exchange rates and uh, uh, our Go service will be calling this exchange rate in order to display a, our prices of our stuff on the website. So how we will be able to see when our applications are breaking, for example, we were getting this like a, a 502 or when we're trying to call one of the service, can we, can we debug this with Bridge to Kubernetes? Yes, you absolutely can. So, I mean, first off, to answer your question, like, how can you see that? I would mm -hmm. hope a lot of times when people talk about DevOps, the, the, the emphasis tends to always be on CI/CD, but DevOps mm -hmm. itself is so much more, right? I mean, just to go by the quote that Microsoft stands behind, DevOps is the union of people, process, and products to enable continuous delivery of value to our end users. If we break that down, value is the most important word in that definition. How are you delivering value if your end users are receiving those 502 errors, right? Or 400 errors or 301 errors or whatever kind of errors. I would hope that there's also some observability and monitoring in place as part of your workflow and your setup, right? That's more of a design implementation and like mindset shift. Once you know that, okay, we're getting those errors. We have that. We've, we've seen that on a dashboard or a Jira ticket's been open or whatever your workflow is. From a developer's perspective, okay, I want to go in and troubleshoot that. Um, now, the first thing I would do is I obviously I'm going to have the code somewhere on my system, my Git repo, and depending on how your structure is, whether you have a mono repo or individual project folders, whatever that is, you go into the service. So if I'm working, like, let's say I wanted to debug the Go microservice, I would make sure that I'm opening Visual Studio Code within that one folder. I don't, I don't actually need, when I'm using Bridge to Kubernetes, I don't need the NPM folder. Right now, I want to take a look at the Go folder. So I would have a launch.json and task.json, which is the VS Code configuration files. I would have that in the Go application and I run my Go debugger. And that, depending on how I've configured it, would deploy out a isolated instance of the Go service. And because that routing manager and Envoy is living in the cluster, that's going to route traffic for me to use the Go service with the existing services in the cluster. I'm literally routing traffic just to my computer from a local development so I can still attach to the NPM. Now I can do the same thing on the flip side. I can go into the NPM folder. I have my own launch.json and task.json, Visual Studio Code files for the, for the Node app, and then I can go and connect to the Go service that's living in the cluster. But both experiences from a developer perspective, all I'm working with is the code for that one service on my system. So it keeps it very traditional from a developer workflow experience, as I don't have to now go set up a Kubernetes cluster on my system, deploy out all the different Helm charts, deal with Docker files. Like I'm literally just working with the code. In fact, with Bridge to Kubernetes, I don't touch a Helm chart or a Docker file. I'm touching just the code. Yeah. And the uh, rest of the stuff would be handled by, you know, underlying tooling too. The underlining so, tooling the and all of that's happening in the back end. I, I mean, I'm, I'm giving details just so that people who are going to ask like, well, how does it do that? Yeah. The extension's taking care of it and you have the routing manager and all those services running in the background. But from a de developer perspective, I'm just working on the Go code or I'm just working on the Node code or whatever language or framework you're working in. Right. And um, in this case, it doesn't require you to have any special type of installation of Kubernetes. It can be like... A, a you can use any Kubernetes cluster. You can even, if you wanted to, you could use Bridge to Kubernetes with like Kubernetes and Docker for Desktop or Minikube or you, you, any Kubernetes cluster you want, you can connect Bridge to Kubernetes to. 
Nice. So in this case, with the uh, I cannot stress enough and uh, support the things that you just mentioned in terms of like if you have uh, all sorts of tools that allow you to debug, you still need to have uh, tools around observability yes. and uh, the things that you can you know explore. And because we're running distributed systems right now, we yep. need to understand what is going on. Yeah, and you don't know like how can you know if there's a problem if you can't see the problem? And again, if the goal is to continuously deliver value and be able to be agile and iterate quickly. How are you going to do that if your if your users are having a, a poor end user experience? Right, makes sense. So um, that's that's super cool. Um, let me ask you another question that um, also related to some of the you know developer um, productivity tools. What's what's your take on uh, service mesh? Do you have uh, like uh, any opinion about this? Like, is this something that developers should try to use it in twenty twenty two? Or is something that uh, maybe it's not it's not ready for developers. It's only operations people who care about security. Just uh, want to get your your opinion about this. So my opinion is going to be uh, a little ambiguous, I guess. It, it, my my opinion is it it depends. It kind of depends what your goals are, what you're developing, what your application setup is. There's a lot of things that can vary, and if it works for you. And again, if you're, I always go back to the definition of the goal is to continuously deliver value. Mm -hmm. If if it is going to enable you to increase your ability of delivering value, to iterate faster, to be more valuable, then great, go ahead and implement it. But one thing that you said that I do want to touch on is developers do have a very um, biased mindset where they believe that security is the operator's responsibility. And I, my background was I came from an operations perspective, IT pro. I bridge the gap now with kind of developer, toe the line. I've worked on DevOps teams now and DevOps focus advocacy for I don't know, five, six years now at this point. And I, for that entire time, I am a very big proponent that security is everyone's responsibility. If you are touching code, if you are writing code, if you are supporting the infrastructure that code runs on, security is a responsibility. How you address that security may differ from, again, from like a service mesh or networking or like from an infrastructure perspective that might fall more into an operator's role. However, that's not the developer can't just rely on operators or the security team or whomever to tell them that there's a flaw also in their code. And that's also where something like Bridge to Kubernetes comes in. Take the most recent log4 exploit that we just dealt with, right? Developers were working overtime over the weekend and being able to iterate quickly and troubleshoot that is really, really important, especially when you're working on these large enterprise teams. So it, going back to service mesh, again, it depends, but I, I don't. I don't agree with the mindset that, okay, well, if it's going to increase security, if it's going to increase networking, if it's going to increase my ability to be agile, that's really, that's the operator's job. As developers, we do still need to care. Um, so if that is something that your team is looking at, it's in our best interest to always test things out and see again, is it going to help us continuously deliver that value? So if we're talking, if, if we stay on this, like a tooling and the security side of things, so are there any other I know like in the recent years, Microsoft is just like a, on the crazy streak on delivering some cool uh, tools for developers. Like I personally use uh, Scaffold. I think Scaffold also was kind of like a Microsoft contributed a lot. Yeah, we had we, we had Draft, which we built on top of Scaffold. Uh, Draft did get archived, um, which uh, made me very sad. So if you're also sad, um, we can cry together. But I can say that I know that Microsoft is always looking for ways to kind of simplify things and build on top of that scaffold experience because that was great. But yeah, we, we're, we're pretty big on 
developing tools that are always trying to simplify things. What's new and exciting in uh, like a security department then? So since we talk about this uh, security stuff, maybe there's something that we need to look up in this space. Yeah. For like, um, you know, maybe it's maybe it's something in Azure that is available there that people can use. There are a few things in Azure. One thing, so I love talking also about open source and then leading back to different ways that you can use it. Um, There is a, it's part of the Azure GitHub repo. So github.com slash Azure slash container scan. And that particular container scan is a GitHub action that you can add to any GitHub actions workflow, whether or not you're using Azure. That container scan tool has two open source um, additional tools included within it. Trivi, uh, which is by Aqua, that's open source. And then uh, I just had it in my head, Dockle. Um, Trivi and Dockle, which uh, will actually scan your container image to make sure that you are following CIS, Center for Internet Security Best Practices as well as making sure that your container image itself doesn't have any vulnerabilities. And if it does, you can have it flag it and fail the build. Um, You can scan that. The best practice would be to build your container image, scan the image before you push a compromised image into your repository. And assuming you're going through that workflow, if you are using Azure, the one thing that would then be specific to Azure is you can also tie in an additional action to publish those results uh, and you publish them into Azure Security Center. So previously, we we talked so much about DevOps, and in my head, security is a part of that. Because as I said, security is everyone's responsibility, and I wholeheartedly believe that. But now we're seeing terms of DevSecOps. And in a lot of companies, we still have security teams being separate from what developers and operations are doing. So traditionally, security teams would look at Azure Security Center or container registries and say, okay, well, we have to go back to the developers because this container image is compromised. It doesn't follow our policies or what build did it trigger from? What run pushed it? What, like there, there isn't any insight. And so now being able to publish the results from that container scan into that insight, it's keeping both the DevOps teams and security teams now, it's starting to bring them closer to the middle. Um, it's not the perfect end goal, but it's starting to make sure that everyone's on the same page, which I think is really cool. Uh, And that's a relatively new feature. We demoed that at Build and Ignite last year. Uh, And again, if you just wanted to use the container scan tool, which uses Trivi and Dockle, that's completely, you can use that with any cloud. Uh, If you wanted to publish the results, that goes over into Azure. So since we we are on a developer tooling podcast, I cannot cannot not ask the question about the naming. So (laughs) we talk about these uh, like uh, Dockle and Trivi things. Why Bridge to Kubernetes doesn't have some cute name. It's called Bridge to Kubernetes. And it's like, we were thinking about how we're going to call this podcast. We're going to Bridge to Kubernetes. And in this case, it would be not super searchable, right? Because it's kind of a very marketing type of term. It's not like something that developers, it's kind of like a synergy in Kubernetes. You can call it synergy in Kubernetes. It would be the, the same thing. Why there's no, and I know that Microsoft has a history of great code names in the, in the past. I, that's above my pay grade because I am not on that particular team. I just, I, ever since I saw it, it's been one of the tools in my in my particular workbench. However, I can tell you the name has gone through iterations. When we first announced it or announced something similar, it was DevSpaces. Uh, but then that wasn't exactly accurate because at the time... I mean, Spaces. There's plenty of... Yeah, I mean, but then Apple has Spaces, but that's different yeah. because then even they've kind of changed it. But... Going back to the the messaging, like dev spaces didn't feel really accurate because the way that was at the time is they would, that was their play on like namespaces and you'd have to set up your deployment in a separate namespace, which then creates issues when you're dealing with RBAC. 
Um, so we kind of moved past that. It then became local process for Kubernetes, which was, in my opinion, uh, <laughs> a step down, obviously, from where we're currently at with bridge to Kubernetes. I like to shorten it to bridge to K8s, but obviously it's still not ideal. However, it is an open source tool. And so if you go and look it up on GitHub, the code name for that is Mindero, uh, M-I-N-D-A-R-O. Uh, I haven't had to spell that out loud before. Uh, so there is a back backend code name that's public. I mean, that's the GitHub repo, but it's not what it's called, I guess, in, in Visual Studio. <laughs> if you, if you, for the for the naming change, uh, uh, tag the team or tag me and I'll tag the team and see if somebody has a has a suggestion. But naming is well above my pay grade. I just know that there's definitely been a history of changes. Exactly. Um, but uh, like people like the, the naming also leads to uh, some cute, uh, cute uh, images that we can use for stickers. Yeah. The same thing. And everyone loves have, stickers. Uh, I mean. Yeah. My favorite, my favorite stickers is the, is the, it's a beat. It's a mascot for some of the like Azure work that you guys are doing. Yeah. And, uh, and the beat it's, um, there's a developer advocate, a raccoon. So beat it's a raccoon. Yeah. And I, I don't remember who told me that, but the essentially the, the metaphor behind the beat, it's it's kind of a developer advocate is like a raccoon. It, it it's uh it can be cute. <laughs> but and it can be persistent in trying to figure out what's going on and Yeah, and like yeah. uh in another life we we were spending a lot of time in the, in the conferences and a lot of time was spent in the, in airports. And eating not super healthy, eating like junk food. Yeah. Same thing as raccoons eating <laughs> from not super healthy. I, I I didn't remember like how the bit had kind of came to be, but the, there are definitely parallels between it. I can tell you that the graphic work for all of that is done by Ashley McNamara on our team. She's amazing. Yeah, yeah. like uh, the work <laughs> around the, uh, the the golfer. Yep. Uh, you probably know. Like we can, you can find some of the links in the description below. And this is a good time to remind that uh, the Concast is a show where we uh, release this in a two formats. One, it's on the YouTube, and uh, we always kind of like a premiere to this. And uh, right now we're recording this, but when, when when we will publish it, you will be able to chat with uh, uh, with our audience live. And when you watch this in YouTube, you will be able to get the awesome part of the show where Jessica will show all these uh, the cool things that we just discussed about the bridge in Kubernetes. If you want to see this demo uh, or try it yourself, you can find uh, this link in the description below. Mm -hmm. um, you can also find all these links to explain how you can install bridge to Kubernetes uh, uh, Visual Studio Code extension. And if you want to contribute, there is also a link for GitHub repo where we can get... Um, all the things around the source and contribution. Yep. Jessica, what would be the best way if our listeners want to you know, contact you or your team and talk a little bit more about their needs for the tools? Uh, the best way is going to be Twitter, and I'm bringing that up right now. So if you go to my Twitter page, which is twitter.com uh, forward slash JLDean, that is two E's in my last name, D-E-E-N. Uh, I'm highly active on there. So you can tag me, uh, message me uh, if you have any questions. If I don't have the answer, I can put you in touch with someone who does, or at least tag the team and we can have, I'm a very big fan of if you have questions to ask me publicly, because if you have a question, chances are someone else has a question or that same question. Uh, and then we can have an open dialogue very publicly on Twitter rather than only helping you in the back end on DMs. As, as much as I love that too, it's sometimes I would love to help as many people as possible. For this, I'm uh, super grateful that Jessica find the time to uh, talk to us today. Um, usual question that I ask my uh, guest is that, uh, is there any book that you recently read, not necessarily technical, or it can be, I don't know, uh, some good article, some long read, 
uh, or maybe even some long read Twitter thread that you can uh, recommend to to our listeners. The last book that that sticks on my head that I read that was super memorable was a book called Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. Uh, I read that actually on a plane back from Sweden. So this was a little while ago, but that book was amazing. I couldn't put it down. Uh, as far as recently, I haven't read a lot of books because as you mentioned earlier, I have been doing a lot of home projects. So I've watched a lot of YouTube videos about home projects. All right. All right. So Jessica, thank you so much for being part of uh, Concast. Thanks to everyone out there for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast using your favorite application so you don't miss a new episode. Don't forget to drop us a comment if you have any questions for today's guests or if there's a topic you'd like to see us cover in the future. For more content from today's guests, you can join us on YouTube to see demo segment from this episode of Concast. We'll see you next time. Thank you.